Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June the 4th, 2009, and my guest is author and journalist Charles Platt. Charles, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much. Charles, you recently did a very interesting um, experiment. You went and took a job at Walmart. Why, why did you do that? I had finished a long stint working for Wired Magazine on an independent contractor basis, but on a very regular basis. I think I contributed more features during that period to the magazine than anyone else. And so I found myself with a creative vacuum, and I had read a book about a journalist's alleged adventure where she took low-paying jobs. I'm not going to mention who the journalist was because she has quite enough publicity already. I think the title has coinage in it. It does. Yeah, go ahead. And I was skeptical uh, without having any evidence because I had not done what she had done. So how could I challenge it? He basically said that it's impossible to live on the current working wage for unskilled people, and it's a scandal, and something should be done, and he had her own experience to prove it. It so happened that I was very familiar with my local Walmart because I enjoy Walmart. I enjoy the fact that it's well run, that it gives me what I want, and at least at my local Walmart, the people seem happy to work there. So here was a paradox, and I wanted to to figure it out, and the obvious way was to get myself employed there, not entirely on a deceptive basis, because as I say, I was I was genu- genuinely willing to work there, and not going in there with an ulterior motive to expose and discredit the company. So that was how it began. And you have any? Um, just go back to your earlier point about shopping there. Do your friends know that you shop there? My friends know that I shop there, yeah. and, and they shop there, because when you live in a relatively remote area of the country, the American West in this case, and you go to a relatively small town, you basically would find it very difficult not to shop at Walmart. And, of course, the people who dislike Walmart would complain that Walmart has driven the mom-and-pop uh, retailers out of business. And in a sense, this is true. It, it didn't drive them out in some unscrupulous or illegal fashion. It simply did the job better. So people started preferring to go to Walmart, and as a result, the, the businesses which were not very well run and didn't have very good stock and were not highly motivated and were gener- generally unhelpful, in my experience, suffered the inevitable fate of capitalism, which is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your political orientation. Yeah, when people tell me they drove – I hear that phrase all the time, they drove the mom and pops out of business. I, I often have the uh, emotional response to point out that the mom and pops were horrible. They had low, low uh, bad service, bad selection, high prices, um, and were grumpy and unpleasant often. 
But that's the wrong answer, although it's partially true, of course. Mm-hmm. The, the right answer is what you say. The right answer is Walmart didn't drive them out of business. I mean, they'd have liked to have done it. It's against the law. Uh, what they did is the consumers drove them out of business because they preferred Walmart. Now, when I first moved from New York City out to a more remote area, I actually did try to patronize the mom-and-pop businesses because I found them interesting, local color and all that. So I tried to buy a file cabinet, and I saw one on display. Oh, you can't have that. We'll have to order it for you, and you'll get it in about two weeks. I tried to buy a microwave oven. Same problem. And either this is because they simply cannot afford to have a, a large stock in the store, or it's simply they'd always done it that way and they saw no reason to change. Uh, perhaps a little of both. Probably both. Yeah. But, but the fact was, they were extremely unhelpful, and, and they almost resisted my attempts to shop there. And I'm sure other people went through a similar experience. So this idea that, that Walmart somehow artificially cut its prices and drove them out of business and now it's taking advantage of the market is completely untrue. Um, they certainly sell for slightly more, more reasonable prices than the old retailers, but one of their great advantages is they have an extremely wide range of things that people want. And so they are literally just giving the consumer what the consumer appears to want. Well, and they relentlessly push down prices uh, by putting pressure on their suppliers. Uh, strangely to me, that is considered bad form. I'm not quite sure why, but um, uh, it used to be called um, uh, productive. I don't know why we've come to vilify that. We'll come back at the end. I want to talk about the social and cultural aspects of Walmart. But let, let's turn to back to your experience. So you decided to get a job there. And um, what was how hard was that? It was very difficult indeed because why? my local Walmart in a in a town with two colleges in it, a fair number of young people, had more than 150 applications for the the, the half a dozen jobs that had opened up, and I know this because the person who did my interview told me, and they have an extremely sophisticated screening process, which begins with a very long quiz, a very cleverly designed, beautifully designed quiz, which I, which I later used myself when, when I was running a small business. And first of all, I had to get through the quiz and, and establish that I was someone who would not basically cause trouble in the four ways that, that were very important to Walmart, uh, those being, uh, would I show up on time? Would I refrain from stealing things? Mm-hmm. Would I refrain from hurting myself? Which, of course, is a big concern because it costs the company a lot of money if you get hurt. And, uh, and of course, the, the, the fourth thing was, uh, would I use any drugs which would impair my performance and, again, lead to, to legal problems? And the quiz gets at these, these issues in extremely roundabout and clever ways. So I had to go through that. How, how long is the quiz? Uh, you, you can take it. I believe they even have it online on their website now, but you can certainly take it in any store. They have a computer at the back, and you just go sit at the computer and enter your information and answer all the questions. Is it, but is it 10 minutes, an hour? Is it multiple It took choice? me about 15 minutes to, okay. go, to go through it at, at a fairly rapid pace. Okay, so you take the quiz. And then uh, if, if you're one of the favorite few, you get called back for the first interview, which was, was a fascinating affair because it introduced me to the fact that, that Walmart doesn't really believe in privacy. 
All of the job interviews were done in, in this little room at the back with tables laid out like a church bake sale. And everyone was chatting at once. You could hear the interview going on behind you. <laughs> it was it was an entirely public affair. Well, you were waiting for, to be interviewed. You're saying they were interviewing other people you could listen in on if you wanted. They were doing four or five interviews simultaneously uh-huh. with different people. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and I heard the guy behind me answering questions in in the way which is so I, I know so well from job interviews where someone is pretending as hard as he can that he really really wants the job and of course is not qualified or has problems. So then you go through the first interview and then if and how you, long did how long does that last? Oh, that's relatively short. I think that's just a sort of general uh, initial screening for people who are absolutely hopeless, but have somehow scored reasonably well on the quiz. That only took about 10 minutes. And then, if uh, you've seen Walmart material, you're called back. And I have to mention that not all stores may do this identically, because there's a a certain amount of autonomy in each store. My store had a a series of three interviews. Other stores may only have a couple. Anyway, I was called back to meet the head of the department which I might be working in, and I think that was mainly to determine if I could get along with him, because obviously if I couldn't, that was going to cause a problem. And then the final interview was with the assistant manager, who was extremely sharp and very observant and had flagged uh, three of my answers on the quiz as being not quite right and and questioned me relentlessly on those until I gave the right answer. So that was the hiring process. Now, how long at this point did you intend to work there? I didn't have any intentions because I didn't know what to expect. I knew that I liked the store, and and as I went through the process, I found it far more interesting, and I liked the people much more than I'd expected. So I was sort of open-minded. It was at the back of my mind, of course, that I might write about the experience. And this gave me a sort of ethical dilemma because yeah. I didn't want to take advantage of their system and waste their money just for my own selfish purposes. So what I felt was, well, if they turn out to be the worst employer in the world, as they are supposed to be, they would deserve whatever they got. And if they turned out to be really good, then I could probably write something which would do them more good than the money it would cost them to take me through the training process. So that was sort of how I justified it to myself. But what I'm curious about is when, when they were giving you a, a really careful look-see from that assistant manager, mm-hmm. did you find yourself playing a role as trying to oversell your interest in the job, or was there any no, play I, acting there for, your, for you? And if, if not, how did that... The, the only thing... I, I made it a principle not to lie to them because I felt that was sort of part of my playing the game, so to speak. And I did have uh, a reference to uh, a previous retail job, which was probably the only form of of deception that I indulged in, which was just I had to have that in order to get the job. But everything else I said was true. Like they would say, well, why do you want to work here? I said, well, I like Walmart. Uh, it's true. I, I I do like Walmart. You know, um, so I was I was honest with them. Now, where the quiz was concerned, but you didn't tell them you were the author of numerous science fiction works um, and, and a senior 
editor for Wired in your past? No, but they didn't ask. Okay. (laughs) They weren't interested, to be quite honest. From their point of view, they wanted someone who would satisfy their, their four concerns, which I mentioned previously, and they wanted someone who would not embarrass the store not alienate customers, uh, be honest and do the job. And certainly I was willing to do all those things. And as regards how long I was willing to stay there, I don't think uh, most people who apply there really know what what they're going to do once they get the job. I think there's quite a high turnover of people who decide that it doesn't pay quite enough or they get a better offer or whatever. And that's the risk you take when you're an employer. I've been an employer... And I know that when you hire someone, there's no guarantee as as to how long they're going to stay. Okay, so you get the job. But I should just add that in in order to go through the quiz, that was really the hardest part because it it asks questions relating, for instance, to employer honesty, which are, are very sneaky. It says, for instance, something like, would you agree that everyone at some point has stolen some little thing from an employer, just a paper clip? Hmm. And, of course, the cynic in me says, well, of course, everyone does that. But then I sort of sense, well, that probably wasn't the right answer. <laughs> um, and you shouldn't be so cynical to work there. You should have a... Uh, 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 but then I thought, well, maybe they anticipated that. So maybe the, the right answer is in the middle, and you should just equivocate. But then, no, that didn't seem right either. So I was really stuck there until I just simply adopted the mindset of what I imagined the ideal Walmart employer employee would answer. And, and that was how I did the quiz. And I would assume that's a well, that's a problem with any kind of quiz. Obviously, they can't tell whether it's people trying. You know, it's, I always like it in a job interview when when you're asked, you know, what are your flaws, yeah. and and the the standard answer is, well, I'm a perfectionist. That's my biggest flaw. Right? <laughs> so the, the employer always is is supposed to be is you know, oh wow, that's his biggest flaw. But of course, the employer knows you're going to lie. And I think one of the reasons employers ask that question is that sometimes people do blurt out the truth. Uh, despite their uh, attempts to to play act, but mm-hmm. in a quiz like that, I assume what's well, part of the reason they do the face to face? They want to try to get to know you a little bit better. Yes, and and in in fact, I think there are some people who would answer that question in a cynical way. Sure. Oh yeah, everyone steals something sometime, and you don't really want that kind of em- employee. You, d- you don't want someone quite quite as kind of cynical as that because then. They're probably not going to serve you very well as an employee. Yeah. And and I come back to the basic fact, which was, was I did like the store. I was curious, and I was willing to work there. So, um, in in a way, they did not make a mistake hiring me. And and after I'd worked there a few days, and I decided it was really too boring for me to continue on a long term basis, they were very insistent about wanting to keep me. <laughs> so. I, I think it, it was a reasonable match, and I certainly, you know, didn't betray them in any way, as far as I'm aware. Okay, so uh, I just want to mention that when I was a teen, a young uh, a young person in New Jersey, home from college, I think I was probably 19 or 18, I spent a summer uh, job at Bradley's, which is a, um, a retailer I don't think exists anymore. It was a, a a general store like Walmart. I worked in the automotive department, and I lugged cases of oil around and stock stuff and walked the floor. 
And I don't think I got any training. I, I think my first day on the job was um, was the day after my interview, and they just said, you know, go to work, go report to this guy, and he'll tell you what to do. But you got some training. Uh, tell us about it. There were two. <clears throat> there were two parts of the training. First, we had uh, two full days of what what the antagonists of Walmart would call indoctrination, but it. It was just pretty standard stuff, like the history of the company, uh, what their corporate creed is, and what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Um, then we were out on the floor, and during that period when I was working as a Walmart associate, restocking shelves, basically, I could take time off at any moment I felt like it and go to the room at the back where they had computer terminals and participate in a self-education program with very sophisticated videos encouraging me to interact and give answers to questions which were designed to make me think about how to be a better employer, employee for Walmart. Uh, everything from how to lift things without hurting your back to how to greet people, what to say and what not to say. It generally aimed at making me more valuable as an employee, and and it was, of course I was paid my usual hourly wage to take this training. And at the end of the training, if I completed it successfully, I got a pay increase because I was now more valuable to the company. So I felt that was extremely well designed and good for me and good for them. So. <clears throat> Unlike, uh, I think what's I think this is increasingly common in the workplace. These uh, tutorials that that are self uh, administered on the computer for yeah. all kinds of technique and and as you say, I think of as corporate culture, sort of what their goals are uh, and how you interact with folks. But was that the bulk of what of what the training was, other than the history and all that? And if so, how how much of that did you do? I. Only worked there a few days, but during that time, I took at least eight, I think, of their self-education sessions because they were very interesting to me. And some of them were slightly amusing, like, for instance, they warned you against telling jokes to customers because <laughs> humor can be offensive. Sure. And they told you there were only a few safe topics for jokes, and they were generally jokes that made fun of white-collar people, such as doctors and lawyers. Fine. <laughs> um, so there was a humorous aspect, but there was also, uh, and, and it's hard for me to remember all the details now, there was material which I found generally interesting as, as a guide to interacting with other people without offending them. And that's a big deal at Walmart, because if you offend a Walmart customer to the extent that that customer does not come back to the store, you have just cost the store a potential hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars in future lost yeah. revenue from that customer. So that's a big deal. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how much, um, what did they pay, uh, and, and what were the benefits, if any? Well, I cannot remember, without looking it up, exactly how much I got paid because it was very complicated. It, 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 it went up slightly when I was willing to do uh, checkout work in addition to other work, and there were various 
incentives and but it certainly was more than minimum wage and everyone who was working there assured me that it was more than they could get at the local target store which was of, of great interest to them because that was you know an employment alternative yeah. it was much more than working at fast food places so yes it's low but then wages at all of these places which are franchises or large corporations where you don't have to have any prior experience and you don't have to have uh, much in the way of education, of course you're going to get paid relatively low wages because you have not increased your value as an employee. And, And, of course, the key to raising wages in these jobs is... Uh, an education system which does increase your value, and that's why a lot of people, after they finish high school, will do vocational education, uh, learning how to fix cars or learning how to be a a construction worker, uh, to increase their value and get better pay. And and they understand this perfectly well. What what I don't understand is why liberal commentators find this such a hard concept the concept that employees have different value depending on their training. Well, that's the market system, and I think some people don't like the outcome. Some people would argue, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about this later, but some people would argue that it's there's so much power at Walmart. I don't find that argument very um, convincing, but the argument would be that they have some kind of market power that allows them to exploit their workers so that the market outcomes of value are not really the only thing that matters, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you see, they, they don't see it that way. They see it the other way around. They, Walmart is in a state of constant uh, paranoid anxiety at, at some other store selling at a lower price, doing a better job. The, the store I went to, the manager uh, every week went to the local competitors and assessed their prices and came back and made adjustments accordingly. And they they also were actively concerned that their customers should be satisfied. They did a weekly um, poll. They, they paid a polling company to make random phone calls every week and, and ask people about their Walmart experience. So th- this is a store which has the true Silicon Valley sort of a competitive mindset, like we could be driven out of business at any moment. We've got to do our best at all times. That's how they are ruled. Now, by the way, I want to mention to, to our listeners, you wrote this experience up for the New York Post, and we'll put a link up to that article uh, on our website. Uh, in that article, you talked about, which this was one of the things I did not know anything about, uh, the autonomy that employees had at Walmart, and you just alluded a little bit to it when the manager changing prices. Mm-hmm. How much autonomy was there for an employee at your level and then as you went higher up, and what was the nature of it? Now, this applies at the store that I worked at. I think it applies more widely, but I don't have any guarantee of that. We were given uh, a machine or, or a handheld scanner called a Telzone, T-E-L-X-O-N, which scans barcodes and gives you information. It's handheld, but it's radio-linked with the computer that runs the whole store. And it not only tells you how much should be on the shelf, how much is at the local warehouse, how long it's going to take to restock, it also tells you 
what Walmart pays for the item and what it sells the item at, and therefore what the profit margin is. So you, the lowly associate who has just been hired and has the lowest possible job in the store, uh, restocking shelves, have access to the profit margin on every single item in the store, which I found somewhat surprising. Yeah, that's fascinating. And the reason they give you that is they want you to be properly informed because they are hoping that you, basically, that you won't screw up. They want you to know what you're doing, and the way to, to give you that information is, is to give you the whole lot. And now why is that relevant? What happens in your... You, you have the, the independent authority to reorder merchandise. You also have the independent authority to do what you and I would call a special. I, I think Walmart has a... Uh, a different term for it, uh, a value price, something like that. It, basically, it means setting a pallet out stacked with these things at a discount price. And you can do that. You can decide that uh, the deal on toilet paper has such a high margin, you can slash the cost by 20% and still make money. And you can order the stuff, set it up on the pallet, you can print your own price stickers because you have access to a price sticker printer. And the person who does the most successful value priced initiative that week uh, gets, I think it was a $50 voucher or something like that. So uh, there was someone who came to talk to us who had taken the initiative rather more than they expected and had done a huge initiative selling car covers or, or little tents that protect cars from the sun. And it was a huge success, and this became recognized at Walmart head, headquarters, and he was invited to go to a corporate seminar and meet the head of the company and, and all the rest of it. Now, that's obviously an exceptional case, and that's why he was sent in to talk to us. But the fact is, they do trust their employees to an extent that most retailers, I think, would not. Yeah, I've never heard of that. It's really quite extraordinary. Yeah. And you'd think the dangers of it would be far outweigh the benefits to Walmart. The, well, in not your, really. I mean, the, the in worst... your zeal to, to, to get to Bentonville, like that car cover guy, you might be doing all kinds of discounts all over the place, ordering all kinds of stuff. Surely somebody is monitoring that. Um, not so far as I was able to tell. Your, your, lo- your department manager may raise an eyebrow and say, uh, why did you do that? You've only worked here like a week, but <laughs> let's see how it works out. They have an attitude, which I really did recognize from my time as a, a journalist covering things in, in Silicon Valley, where they're all they feel we're all in it together we're all getting a share of the annual bonus and the bonus is completely tied to the profitability of the store and you don't want to do anything which will hurt the store because you may get fired and you'll if you don't get fired you'll hurt your bonus and everyone else's bonus and then they'll be mad at you so so you have peer group pressure and self-interest both operating to to, so, so that you control yourself. You don't do anything really stupid. I mean, who would? 
Uh, well, a gam- uh, the person who would would be an impulsive uh, gambler uh, who would say, I'm going to roll the dice here. So let's say you ordered the car covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you were in the the uh, the Southwest where it was sunny. Yes. But let's say you're in Minnesota where it's less sunny and you did something. You said, well, I'm going to try the car tra- cover trick, and you ordered a few hundred or a few thousand, and they don't sell. Do you know what? There must be something embedded in the system to correct that, either to ship them to somewhere sunnier or to. I, I don't end know the what experiment. the follow up would would be yeah. to that. I I don't think you would last very long. So 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 from Walmart's point of view, they take a risk of someone doing something stupid, and the upside is that by by devolving so much authority to a low level, they keep their management costs very low and. The person who places this order is the guy who's speaking on a daily basis with customers, so he really knows what's going on, whereas a manager probably doesn't have time. So you, you, you have a very big upside of finding something which other stores don't know about because they don't do this and they don't speak to their customers so actively, and a small risk of someone you know, messing it up once in a while. Well, so I, I, I think from their, sense, their point of view, it makes perfect sense. It just involves... A leap of faith. What about more uh, sundry day-to-day issues? What makes sure that stuff doesn't run out on the shelves? Well, uh, what process are you, as the guy on the floor who's closest to it, following that keeps that from happening? Because they have a legendary inventory control and, yes. and just-in-time system. Well, what, they, they would say, that, as they did in their training, that one of the keys to their success is they have this network of local warehouses, which, of course, are their own warehouses. And that's sort of like the buffer between the store and the supplier, wherever the supplier is for each item. So if you every, every night you go around and check all the the inventory on on the shelves and see see what's running low and and you 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 reorder it i i actually i think actually a different crew of people come in to do this as i recall and the local warehouse uh resupplies the store every night and then the night shift comes on and puts everything on the shelves if you go to walmart around midnight you will find pallets of stuff in cardboard boxes and people restocking shelves so this happens on a nightly basis now this, by the way, this was a plain Walmart. This was not a super Walmart. That's I, right. Yeah. And the reason it's not a super Walmart was that the local town uh, uh, contrived its regulations to make a superstore impossible. Yeah, we have that also. Yeah. Uh, where I live in uh, suburban Maryland in Montgomery County, mm-hmm. uh, and we have uh, – it, it disgusts me, but we have a – uh, special set of regulations for stores of a certain size. Mm-hmm. It only applies to two stores. It applies, as far as I can tell, to Super Walmart and to Wegmans, which is an incredibly successful and phenomenally pleasant grocery chain, which they've managed to keep out of uh, Montgomery County, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that Giant, the inadequate and inferior chain, uh, mm-hmm. thrives with uh, by keeping its stores in it in uh, rather. <clears throat> old and, and unexciting uh, fashion right. with high prices. It's rarely um, – but in, in the case of Montgomery County, they don't ban Super Walmart. They just make it an extra hurdle. They have to get a special permit, which means they have to, I assume, suck up to the city to the county council, and, mm-hmm. and there's uncertainty about it. You might not get it. 
So it's a obviously it's a very risky um, uh, investment for for a firm. So anyway, so so it was a regular Walmart, um, and we skipped over. But I wanted to talk about the benefits. You said the pay was low, but higher than some. And did there was a stock option? Is that not correct? Yes, every everyone could set aside a small amount per pay interval. I think the pay interval was two weeks. I can't remember. Um, uh, two dollars a time uh, to buy shares in the company, and I think there was a some slight discount involved also. And in in my group of people who were undergoing training, every everyone except me. Uh, chose that option, so they all liked the idea of owning stock in the company. And you didn't get – you weren't there long enough, I assume, to get much camaraderie with the people you were working with. Did you have much interaction with them? Oh, uh, we had quite a lot of interaction, and I also had someone assigned to me who was just a regular employee who was my guide um, who kind of took me around the store and, and showed it to me from her point of view. And I also got on fairly good terms with my department manager because, let's face it, restocking shelves is not an occupation which takes all of your concentration. You have time to chat and and get to know people. So, yeah, I talked to quite a few people there, and that was one reason I was there. As a a journalist, I, I wanted to know about them, and I was sort of looking for human interest stories. And what did they, what was your impression on them? They were genuinely happy to be there because the alternatives were worse. And they also felt that Walmart treated them well, largely by leaving them alone. Um, You would spend large amounts of time just just doing your job without anyone harassing you or criticizing you. All the things that tend to happen in smaller stores, like, oh, no, no, put that that way around. No, we never do that that way. You just didn't get that, Uh, partly because everything was so clearly established beforehand, you you knew what to do. And the people who worked there were well-selected as employees. They were, so far as I could tell, honest and sincere and pretty decent. Uh, Everyone was certainly friendly towards me. Were any of them ambitious? I think one of the things you think about when we think of the the critics of of Walmart and other types of of employment in the United States – you know, they talk about a quote dead end job. You know, mm-hmm. just stuck there. Um, presumably, some of these people expected or hoped to move up in the employment chain, and and some of them presumably had. No, I don't think so. No? Um, very very few seem to have that that fire because you know there's for whatever reason there's a substantial part of the workforce which doesn't really believe that it, it can do much more. Uh, the people are either sort of beaten down by the educational system or they just don't have high aspirations or they're just there while they're working their way through college and they, they know they're not going to make a career out of it. And my, my department manager had been there for more than 15 years in that same job and really seemed very happy in that position because he, he pointed out to me that the other places where he'd worked there was always someone hassling him, but but here, Walmart is broken down in, into departments very much like little stores, which are which are autonomous. And he said he could go for for weeks at a time 
without any superior manager coming around and asking him what he's doing. So he ran the department exactly the way he liked to run it, and he just was very happy at that level. When you say broken down like little stores, were were there reports generated for profitability by by section that, that people would react to? Uh, yes. Each section had to give a, a weekly report, or I think it was automatically generated as to how well it had done, and we had a weekly meeting on the sales floor um, <laughs> so, that, so that anyone coming into the store could just stop by and listen, <laughs> in which the best-performing sections uh, were applauded, and, the, and each section described what its specials were going to be for the coming week. You know, like the guy who sold DVDs would hold up a couple of DVDs and say, well, I've decided to do specials on these because these look real good, and uh, this is what the price is going to be. And, um, and then we do the Walmart cheer, which, of course, is, is very easy to ridicule, uh, give me a W, give me an A, and um, and in the middle where you have the hyphen between yeah, Walt and dash, Mark, yes. that is called the squiggly. <laughs> and when you when you do the squiggly, everyone has to wriggle. It's <laughs> only <laughs> the wriggly. Okay. <laughs> um, and then at the end, uh, who who is the more who is the who is the most important person? And everyone shouts out the guest because. That's what's most important, keeping the guests happy. Those are the customers, presumably. Yep, those I are mean, the customers. I, I, can't, uh, I can't get over this autonomy thing. You know, we talk a lot on this show about uh, the ideas of Hayek, and Hayek is uh, – one of the things he's famous for is the, uh, is the, is the value of local knowledge mm-hmm. and that knowledge is dispersed. It's not easily brought together, and what a market economy does is – bring knowledge together to be used without any one person having to have it all in his or her head. And the idea that an individual um, associate making something between 7 and $10 an hour, presumably, yeah. makes the decision about what DVDs will be on sale at Walmart, that that doesn't come down from corporate headquarters, is both uh, surprising to me and quite smart, obviously, in that mm-hmm. – Bentonville, Arkansas is going to find it difficult to figure out what might be the tastes of people in this state or that state and to allow the local employees to do it. But it, it, I, it's fascinating that that's how they do it. I didn't know that. Yes. So far as I could tell, that's exactly how it's done. And, and you're right. There's no way they know in, in Arkansas what consumers are going to want to buy in Flagstaff. And if they wanted to track that, it would be – very time-consuming, and the results might not be accurate. Whereas some guy who's selling stuff all day long, he knows. You know, Except, so why not take advantage of that? Well, again, because one answer would be he thinks he knows and he's wrong. Uh, you know, the I think one of the things that's underappreciated about Walmart. I've always made the claim that Walmart's a high-tech company, not mm-hmm. a low-tech company, and people like to make fun of it because it's quote just retailing. Mm. Well, just retailing is about half of our lives, and I shouldn't. The word "just" doesn't belong in front of it, but I think in the in the um, snobs' uh, eyes, it's you know you just put some stuff on the shelf and sell it. But what, what Walmart? Uh, one of the reasons they've been so successful is is the is that computerized system embedded in that that device you would hold in your hand and the radio communication to the warehouse and and the way they would keep inventory costs down. So I'm not. Uh, I'm surprised that 
for example, in trying to figure out what DVDs are going to move this week or next week, you'd think Walmart would have a great deal of information about that at the national level, at, at corporate headquarters, that it wouldn't be that difficult for them to uh, find out what's selling well and to make sure that they don't run short or that they run a special here or there. They've got this immense amount of information, and you'd think the use of sophisticated statistical techniques could help them do better than just some guy on the floor thinking, hmm, this looks good this week. So <laughs> I, I wonder, there might, you know, there, might be, there might be some tension there. I'll just give one example, and I, I think this is a true story. I, I've read it in the newspaper, so it could be true. Uh, supposedly, Walmart, in advance of uh, natural disasters, if a hurricane or a flood or an earthquake is predicted in a region, they have, from their past experience, know that people want to buy a lot of water mm-hmm. in advance. They want to buy milk. Uh, they want to buy beer. And I th- and this is the item. I'm not sure is whether this was a joke or a true story. The Walmart uh, inter- person being interviewed said that people like pop tarts. A yeah, and and potato chips. Things um, that I don't used to live in, and... in Florida, and I went through three hurricanes there. And you're exactly right. The, the, it was extremely clear that as the hurricane was coming closer, the Walmart was was stocking up big time on, on these things. So presumably, that kind of decision isn't made by people on the floor. That Walmart well, is exploiting a lot of their. I, I don't know corporate um, knowledge. Because it can go either way. I mean, yeah, the person on the floor can can make dumb mistakes, but then people in Arkansas can make dumb mistakes too. They can track what worked before, but they're not there. They don't know exactly what's happening. And on a more prosaic level, they certainly don't know, like which movie star is is most popular in Arizona. Yeah, and um, I I think the system works very well for, for gathering this kind of data. I have no doubt that the results are being analyzed and yeah. the success rate and all the rest of it. And and I think if old Joe in, in Flagstaff, Arizona, makes too many bad calls on what DVDs should be selling and should be discounted, someone will have a word with him sooner or later and yeah. say, you know, you're not getting it right here. Well, yeah, the hierarchy, I mean, what's, what's surprising to me is uh, I'm not surprised that there's some autonomy at the local level. Mm-hmm. What's surprising is how far down it goes down the hierarchy, yes, right? I, that's... I agree. But but on the other hand, they don't have that many levels. Yeah. I mean, uh, you've got your associates, your department managers, your assistant manager, and your manager. I think that's it. But you didn't you didn't work there very long, correct? No, I was there for about a week. So I wonder, you know, presumably, if you'd stayed longer, I wonder what kind of monitoring and oversight meetings, et cetera, that people go through. You say there was a weekly meeting, right? Uh, there was a weekly meeting just pre- to, to present results and, and congratulate the, the departments that are doing well. Um, there are certainly performance evaluations, and I was told that my, my future at the store and my pay increases, that, that there are pay increases that are spaced out, I think, every three months, and they depend very much on, on how well you're doing. And and that clearly is is monitored in a fairly sophisticated way. But if you didn't want to do any of those more ambitious things or creative things like putting something on special, uh-huh. you could just go about your daily chores, restocking and smiling yeah. at people, right? And then you you yeah. do okay. You you could remain there, I'm sure, on a quite a long term basis. As long as you don't tell the wrong kind of jokes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you ran this piece on on this experience. Um, what kind of reaction did the piece get 
in the New well, York Post? Well, first it went online. You see, I, I found that my experience was sufficiently complicated that I couldn't write a book about it. Because, I, first of all, books that are positive about large corporations don't do very well. Yeah, kind of boring. Yeah. You have to have a scandal. And I, yeah. there was no scandal. I they had no story. They weren't serving rats in the... No, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I wasn't uh, thumping the table and den- denouncing the, the plight of the exploited working poor. Shame on you. Yes. Um, so I felt I didn't have an easy book. Uh, I was going to try and do an op-ed piece um, and uh, the Washington Post w- were interested, but they didn't like the fact that I had worked there, as they put it, undercover. They don't allow journalists to do that. And then very shortly after that, it, this was all some time ago, um, something else was dominating the news. And I just felt that this was one of those many things that I've encountered in journalism where it's very interesting, but it doesn't make a good book. So I, I kind of gave up on that and turned elsewhere. Then years later, I... I was guest blogging on on a, a site on online, and I put something up about my Walmart experience. And an editor at the New York Post saw it and asked me to write it up in twenty five hundred words. And so I did. And um, the response on the blog was, I would guess, two thirds positive, uh, one third denunciations. And the response from the New York Post, I really didn't get any. Um, a, a newspaper in in Arkansas picked it up because you know Walmart hometown, and did a very fair and decent interview with me, which appeared in the local newspaper, and that was that. So you didn't get um, you didn't get cut off from a lot of cocktail parties for writing pro Walmart stuff. Oh, I'm not that much of a social animal, and <laughs> and uh, and out in that r- rural area in the West, everyone. The, the people who read it there just sort of shrugged and said, yeah, we, we know. <laughs> you know that's, we understand that's how Walmart is, and, and so it was not news to them in any way at all. What I find fascinating is the uh, social and cultural attitudes we have towards this store and I, I, towards this company. I find it a little bit weird because I, I have no interest in defending Walmart. Uh, what I'm interested in is defending the process that creates Walmart, which mm-hmm. is called – Capitalism, or it's what we used to have in the United States. We somewhat at risk. There's still lots of pockets of it, fortunately. But it, it fascinates me that it is a cultural uh, taboo in the among the elite, educated folks in the United States. Uh, it's a taboo to shop there. It's a taboo, certainly, to work there, uh, except as a, uh, trying to expose them as some kind of exploiter. And among among people that we know, my wife and I know, if you – and I, by the way, I almost never shop at Walmart because there isn't one within miles of me for, for these reasons, political reasons we talked about earlier. But when we uh, are away in the summer and sometimes staying somewhere else, we'll shop at Walmart to stock up for the place we're staying at. And if my wife or I reveal that to our friends, they raise an eyebrow like, why would you shop there? Really? Because <laughs> well, because you're exploiting people, and when you ask them, well, but hundreds of people, as you say, show up often for just a handful of mm-hmm. of opportunities. Why would people want to work there if they're exploited? And the simple answer, of course, is often they don't know any better, or they right. they don't have any alternatives, and that opens up a you know a different a different conversation. But what I find so remarkable and really tragic is that. That attitude among educated people of, of a certain kind and ilk uh, that 
in a capitalist system that if you're successful, you must be exploiting someone. Uh, the idea that because your wages are lower uh, than others pay is somehow means that you – it's your fault as the employer, not the worker's fault for having low skills. That, that the Walmart somehow isn't part of a marketplace where they have to compete with work for workers. Uh, the fact that people don't understand that is uh, – it's a handicap to our future, I think. Well, I think that people tend to be afraid of things that they cannot control, and large corporations feel as if they are out of control, and who's going to keep them under control? There's nothing to keep them under control. We need the government to keep them under control, else who knows what they might do. Then None of this is, is necessarily articulated clearly, and, and all of it, I think, is irrational, but I think there is this mentality. And I, I hate to sound like a cliché, but the unions that wish to unionize Walmart pander to this shamelessly. Sure. Because when you add it up, more than a million employees now in Walmart. Now, you multiply that by the union dues that those people would be paying per person. That is a huge sum of money. And even the most ethical Union cannot be oblivious to this. You're so cynical, Charles, but I appreciate that. Well, no, I think, I it's, think it's just true. being realistic. No, I, th- I think it's true. But what I find, you know, just as an as an example, this kind of strange cultural uh, taboo. I was uh, on the radio the other day with someone on the other side of the ideological fence, and Walmart came up and he's and he was saying negative things about. It. He said, but of course, you know. Costco is is okay, mm-hmm. and for some reason, and I think well, I know the reason. Costco's made an attempt to create an identity for it as a, itself as a socially responsible company. For some reason, because Costco pays fifty cents or a dollar more per hour on average than, say, a Sam's Club, uh, there's it's okay to shop there. Now, of course, they're still way below the national average. Of course, they have different kinds of employees with different kinds of skills, so it's not comparable at all. Well, but you you have uh, you have. Uh, permission. Is, is Costco unionized? I, I don't know. It, I, it might be. I don't know. Mm-hmm. have a suspicion that, that they have a, a, a rather different uh, setup with their labor force. No, they do, uh, clearly. Uh, but the idea that somehow uh, where you shop um, – now, it, it's a fascinating issue. If, if you wanted to know that the places you shopped were all ethical, which is a very ambiguous phrase – they all treated their employees well, um, then you'd spend a lot of time investigating and not much time shopping. Uh, I always like to say that if your goal in life is to only shop and interact you know, economically with good people, you're going to be um, very poor. And there's, you're also at risk, of course, that people will decide you're not a good person. You're not allowed to shop or interact. Uh, people won't interact with you. So this idea that we shouldn't shop at Walmart or some other store because – they don't treat their workers as well as, quote, they should, is um, it's an interesting idea. It's a new idea. It's well, I, I think there's something to be said for it, but it raises huge, uh, huge and difficult and probably insoluble issues as to how you assess this, how you know that your facts are right, and, and how you keep up on it from one week to the next. Sure. And I found it much easier just simply to, to ask the people working there, as I still do, incidentally, when I go there. I say, how's it going? Uh, is it still, still pleasant to work here? And they always say yes. And, and to me, that's good enough. If, if they're happy there, um, I, uh, and another thing about the, 
the, the attitude you're talking about is it, it tends not to respect the people who who are doing the jobs. The, the attitude is, oh, they're being exploited because they don't know any yeah, better. That's very dis- dis- well, very well, let me tell you, the, the people I spoke to were very well aware of of their alternatives and talked about them frequently and compared, you know, the deal I'm going to get here with the deal I'm going to get there. And, you know, I'm only going to work here for another year because I'm doing evening classes and I'm going to learn how to be whatever. Um, they have it figured out. They really don't need that much protection. They are protecting themselves. So that that would be my take-home message. Yeah, I, I once speculated what it would be like uh, if there was a, a jar at the cashier's um, checkout station where you could augment the wages out of the goodness of your heart <laughs> of the employee. And, of course, some people would, would enjoy that. They'd like to have that money. But I think a lot of people would find it deeply insulting. To suggest that somehow they're they're exploited, I, I assume that's not what they feel. Well, they I also there. think the people who are so concerned about the workers there probably wouldn't put the money in the jar. <laughs> there's a there's a jar of that kind at the, the local health food store, and it's usually empty. So yeah. I, I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because they're constantly cleaning it out to make sure that you you think that they need it. Um, in closing, to talk about your sensibilities. Um, you have at least in this issue of what. Well, you might call a free market sensibility, a recognition that wages come from um, the value that that you contribute, and so on. Uh, where did that come from in your in your? Uh, well, I, I grew past? up in a in a very socialist environment, which was Britain in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. It was run by a series of socialist governments, and many industries in the country were nationalized. Much as na- uh, as industries are being nationalized in the United States right now, so big feeling of deja vu. Um, it came to the United States because I was always dissatisfied with that model, without really knowing why. I, I had very little political education. I was uh, a dropout after having studied economics at Cambridge University, and I dropped out because it became clear to me that that economics really wasn't the science as I understood it. And so I was just sort of casting about, feeling dissatisfied, and gradually realized that the Hayek arguments made a lot more sense to me than other arguments. And I started sort of reinterpreting the world on that basis. And that's sort of where I ended up after a lot of thought. But you were an economics dropout, so you did have some training, but at Cambridge. So. Yeah, I was only there for six months, and and it, it's a Keynesian bastion, or at least it was then. So it, it was, it was all the stuff that doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> you know, it's like they say, well, this is so, and I'd say, well, how do you know it's so? Oh, well, you know, the demand curve and the supply curve intersect. Well, well who draws these curves? How do you get the data? How do you know it's right? And and what what do you how do you explain it if everyone in the country suddenly decides? to buy hula hoops or something. I mean, isn't that going to distort the market? And uh, you, you can ask questions like that, and there are never sufficient answers to them. So I was just very dissatisfied so, with it. When you say it, you decide it wasn't a science, do you have some interest in science? Yeah, I mean, I when I was going th- through high school, I um, math and physics were my best subjects, and, and even now I'm I'm actually doing things which require... Some engineering skills and basic basic physics, uh, and I and I have been a science fiction writer who took the science kind of seriously. So that's that's my background. 
Yeah, I've come to the same conclusion from a different perspective, as listeners of the show know. Now, just in, in closing, let me ask you one more thing. Um, what do you think – did you encounter any of the um, – or have you encountered any of the virulent anti-Walmart folks in any uh, – face-to-face or other kind of way. I have been blessedly spared from from that irritating experience. So what would they say in listening to this interview? They they might say, well, you know, here's a guy who who likes shopping at Walmart and who's gone through this. He only worked there a week. He doesn't really know how horrible it really is. And this is just some kind of – there's no value to this. This is – and – People are going to say, listen to this, I didn't ask you any tough questions because I'm too sympathetic. So what what might a skeptic say to you? Well, they say I only had a small sample. Um, I saw it through, uh, I was biased, Uh, I was probably uninformed, naive. You know, I was just as naive as the people I'm defending. Uh, Don't I realize how much money Walmart makes and can't some of that be redistributed to the workers? And... um, when all else fails, they might allege that I was in some way corrupt. And what's your answer? Well, I'm certainly not being paid by anyone other than the New York Post. That's the only money I've made out of this. <laughs> it's certainly put in a lot of time and no return. So <laughs> I'm not corrupt. And I, I wish think, I could improve the return, but this is this, we don't <laughs> pay guests either, unfortunately. And, and during my work for Wired Magazine, I visited an awful lot of companies, and I became very quickly aware of, of companies which had a bad vibe and companies which had a good vibe, meaning they were, uh, you know, workers were either not being exploited or, or were very unhappy and getting ready to jump ship. I, I saw many of those. And, and Walmart is very stable in the sense that, that, I mean, I've been back to the store like five years later. The same people are still there. You know? <laughs> but that's because they're stuck there. They're slaves. Don't you realize that? I, I once was interviewed by a TV reporter about Walmart, and I made a, a joke, which she didn't get, unfortunately. But I made a joke that you know it's hard for them to get into their cars at night because the ball and chain they have to carry it. <laughs> you know, it's, it slows them down. But you know, that's those poor people there. They're 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 suffering because they're they're stuck there. No, they they are evaluating their options on a on a daily or weekly basis, and if they find something better. They will go get it. They are not as dumb as the elitists would like you to think. And that, that I think, is, is my take-home message. And for listeners who want to read some of your science fiction work... Uh, it's can, all want, out of print. It's all out of print? Yep, yep. And I'm, and I'm happy about that. I, I, I stopped writing science fiction uh, more than 10 years ago. All of my wired uh, journalism is still available in the Wired archives, and I encourage people to look that up. My guest today has been Charles Platt. Charles, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Okay, thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.